The Fake Show Podcast welcomes our newest sponsor, Expand Laces. Never tie your shoelaces again with the original no-tie system, now in 40 colors. Go to expandlaces.com. That's X-P-A-N-D. The Fake Show is also sponsored by Hutchison & Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, the Tone Factory Recording Studios, Moonshot.com, Mr. Antenna, and Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty. This song, Spirit in the Sky, came out officially in January of 1970. The bluesy rock riff was undeniably catchy to the point where it would initially sell 2 million copies, peaking close to the top of the Billboard Top 100 and was certified gold. Now, all these 50 years later since its initial release, it has really never gone away, appearing in several films, TV shows, and commercials along the way. I've attempted to get in touch with Norman Greenbaum on various occasions over the years and didn't have much luck until now. He survived a serious car accident just a few years ago and is starting to perform a Again, I've got Norman Greenbaum on the line right now from his home in California. Norman, welcome and thank you so much. Uh, first of all, I've done classic rock radio for years and I've I've always wanted to talk to you, but until lately there seems to have been a reclusiveness about you. Is that a pretty fair assessment? No. Uh, a few years ago, five now, I was in a serious car accident. Yes. So I wasn't I wasn't too available for a couple of years uh, then. But since uh, I don't know, I guess uh, when you rely on the computer continuously and the computer croaks, and then you can't remember <laughs> who called, <laughs> who questioned, who anything. So might have been, but I've, I've been too reclusive. Not a lot now, yeah. Where do you hail from originally? Are, are, you're an East Coast guy, aren't you, originally? I was born near Boston. What was your upbringing like back there? Oh, it was normal working class. Um, I took an interest in music. I like to listen to uh, music on radio and took a liking to it. And uh, I, I actually used to... Uh, DJ at the high school uh, dance hops uh, in high school. And uh, I wanted to go to DJ broadcasting school, actually, but I went to Boston University for uh, writing. And while I was there, um, I did a lot of hanging out at the local clubs where um, it was mostly acoustical bluegrass country, uh, southern blues. It was uh, the uh, the college circuit. Yeah. So uh, it was like Joan Baez and Judy Collins in their early years, and even Bob Dylan. And I, I just really loved it, and I found I had an affinity for writing songs, and I liked I liked to rhyme. I, I wow, rhyming's cool. So uh, I started writing songs. I got a couple gigs at local clubs and uh, that's how I started. I want to move to New York to follow through. Was New York the place where a lot of people were going because of the Greenwich Village scene and and that type of area? Absolutely. And the, and the Greenwich Village scene, of course, produced everyone who was coming and playing the college circuit uh, all along the East and Midwest. And um, I didn't 
really care for New York. Um, I don't I don't really care for tall buildings. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do? You know, I heard the Beach Boys, and I went, oh, wow, that's pretty good. You know, beaches, sun, and had a couple of friends that had moved there, and they said, oh, yeah, you got to come out here and stay with us till you get settled. And I did, and I uh, got settled and started hanging out at places there where there were music, and, you know, you meet one person or another who knows somebody who knows somebody and so I got a band together and I liked to write like little funny songs at the time and so my first band was Dr. West's Medicine Show and Junk Band through a jug band. What are your parents thinking at this point as you just kind of take off and and uh, move probably with not a lot of money? Right. Well, uh, my, my my father had already passed at a young age, sorry, and um, probably would have not liked it. Yeah. It, of course. My mother hated the idea. Uh, some family, you know, uncles, cousins, they thought, it was, hey, cool, man, you're going to Hollywood. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, they would have rather have seen me uh, finish college and uh, be what they uh, considered normal. <laughs> I know you went to school for it and songwriting and everything, but like most young guys, did you get into the business for the girls or were you actually somebody who was strictly in it for the music? You know, it was the music. Uh, I never considered, you know, being a star and having groupies. Uh, That came a long time after. And actually, I didn't like it, believe it or not. Yeah. I'll get into that later. Uh, but yeah, it was it was the music, and uh, I knew that I could do it because I I believed in my writing, and and I was off beat, and I thought that would help me, and it did, uh, especially with this band that I was part of, because uh, it was the early days. It was '65, '66, and so it was the early days of uh, a lot of things changing. Uh, because of San Francisco, but we were in L.A., and we formed a band, and uh, it was goofy, and we had a washed-up bass and all that, and uh, had strange uh, paint at our faces and had a light show. So we were, like, years before Kiss and other bands that, that did stage like that, and on top of it, we were a jug band, but we got signed to someone who had uh, a, a few uh, big-time acts, so they were legitimate. We went in, we recorded the Eggplant at Ace Chicago, and it became the like the first jug band record that had ever made the Billboard charts. That's amazing, and because I was just listening to that not too long ago, I, I actually found that. Obviously, you've got some talented musicians that you're playing with, though. Well, uh, that band was, I, I would, you know, without insulting them a little and myself, we were a little crude at that time. We were yeah. learning as we went, and, and hopefully would get better. Uh, we did. Uh, I used to write skits because you know we had the fake Doctor West medicine, and I used to make these little props and do these little skits about the Doctor West medicine and everything. And the implanted at Chicago. Uh, it, it was. Uh, it, it attracted people to come see us. 
at the same time, a lot of other acoustic acts in the area were making it, other than the rock, the early rockers on Sunset Strip. So there were all these folk clubs like the Ash Grove and, and um, a bunch in uh, Orange County and some and and uh, the Ice House in Pasadena. So we all had places to play. And that's where the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and Jackson Brown, a whole bunch of others, actually at the same time. And uh, your present presentation that you're describing of your band, it kind of reminds me of a little bit of what Frank Zappa would do just a few years later. Right. Uh, he 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 always did uh, crazy stuff. Yeah. And yeah. In fact, there's a there's a great video of him on the Steve Allen show. Uh, playing with bicycle spokes. So. Yeah, I've seen that. You're right. Yeah, so uh, there were many people doing what we did, and still it was acoustic, and a lot of acoustic music was going on, on there, and, and back east in New York, too, like Richie Havens and oh, just so many others getting their start uh, beyond, beyond Richie Havens. And so we did that, and um, I, I always thought I was up against it because I, I, I didn't write love songs. If you go back and look at the charts, I, I did not fit in. So uh, I was always fighting management and stuff like that and, you know, possible guest appearances on, on TV shows because they wanted yeah. me to cut stuff out of the act. I did not swear, uh, but I, I had I had one little gimmick where um, I had the Doctor West medicine in the six pack because <laughs> you don't have to buy one at a time, and you'll always have a few around. So right. I get to what it actually was, which was uh, Doctor West suppositories, <laughs> and my and my catch line at the end was Doctor West suppositories. You know what you can do with them. And they wouldn't let me on TV with that. Yeah, I mean, at a time when they wouldn't even let Rob and Laura Petri sleep in the same bed, I, I suppose they weren't going to let you get away with that one. Yeah, and that I just always bothered me because I thought it was really funny. You know? So I, I, you know, I didn't cut it out. We did some other strange skits. But I got tired of, of, of like, fighting for my place on stage. So I decided, well, let's see, everybody else is going into rock and roll. I'm going to try that. So I left I left that behind and uh, started forming rock bands in L.A. In the dark, sort of, sort of say, uh, in the dark, I was playing rock and roll riffs. That's how I had the riffs going with me for the opening of Spirit in the Sky. I just fooled around playing blues things and because I, I listened to a lot of blues when I was back in Boston. And I didn't yeah. know what to do with it because I was in transition. So I just let it, you know, when I was just fooling around by myself, I'd, I'd you know, fool around with it. We had one band uh, together and uh, we were playing at the Troubadour, Eric Jacobson who was the producer of all the uh, Love and Spoonful hits, uh, happened right. to be there. He heard me do my set, and he came backstage, and he said he liked one song, but most of all, it was called School for Sweet Talk. That was more uh, a 
It wasn't exactly a love song. It sort of was, I guess. Yeah, it was. It was like Sebastian. It sounded a lot like a like a love and spoonful song. Were you doing Spirit in the Sky on stage at that time before you even recorded it? Uh, no, that was still coming. Uh, yeah, I hadn't put it all together yet. I had all these other songs, and um, so he said, look, uh, I'm based in San Francisco now. I moved out here from New York. I manage, I, I, I produce the uh, Stop With Camel and the Charlatans, and the Charlatans was the band where Dan Hicks started, and uh, right. uh, of course, the Stop With Camel had a big hit called Hello, Hello. And yeah. so he said, look, I'd like to sign you. Let's work out something, but I don't want the band. And so I said, all right. <laughs> so I had to ditch the band, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, that's one of the things, you know, you have to decide upon show business. That seems like a fairly common tale, though, where they take the lead singer and they put them with their own people, I suppose. Well, if, if you look back, and even to this day, a lot of lead singers or lead guitar players do go out and uh, on their own. Yeah, so I did it. So you know, I, I I moved up there and stayed with him till I could get settled. And in the meantime, I had developed Spirit in the Sky and uh, presented it to him with all these other songs that I that I uh, worked on and, and made them tighter. And he said, "Wow, that one that one's great." And so we went into San Francisco and started recording. And there you have it. It didn't get released as a single uh, until 70. Uh, we had recorded it in the fall of 69. How long did that song percolate before you even laid down that track? I mean, how long had that been sitting well, around? Um, when I first wrote the words, I, I was still in L.A. I was uh, influenced by watching, of all people, the Porter Wagoner show, and he would always. Right. I mean, I love his nudie suits and his pompadour hair. He looked cool. I just thought he was cool. He had a great personality. He did a religious song, right. and I was, you know, I was always on the edge of who knows what, and I, I just blurted out to myself, I can do that, never having done it before, and I just put it together without even thinking about religion. I just said, oh, well, if it's going to be religious, that's what people would probably like. And uh, so I did that. But I did not know how, what music I was going to put it to because I would sometimes write things together and other times I would just write some music and, and, and try to figure out what words to put with it or vice versa. So it took me a little bit of time till I finally said, oh, didn't try that yet. And then when I did, I knew it, that, that that was the one. That fuzz pedal or whatever that cool sound is on the record, or is that a fuzz pedal? Well, it, it's actually a handmade fuzz device that is a miniature. It was uh, put together by uh, someone that had been in the band. He actually did record with me a few songs at the beginning, all the band people that I had to ditch. <laughs> he put it inside the guitar. He drilled out a hole in a Fender Telecaster thing with a 9-volt battery and a switch. And so it wasn't a pedal, and there wasn't anything else like it, and it just reverberated this different way. And uh, I finger-picked, which, like, when people try to 
emulate it. They play with their tip. And they don't get the same sound. It's been hard to... I, I still have people working on it. I've, I've, I've got a friend here in town who uh, has been able to uh, find the part that'll finally do it because in uh, time is everything. Oh, I don't have the guitar anymore, but you're trying to recreate yeah, but it. They don't make words. parts like that anymore. Like everything else. <laughs> I mean, people have <laughs> gone back to, to vinyl because it really sounds good. And it's, it's just not, you know, this perfect, everything's supposed to be perfect, but it's slightly phony. And, um, I think we finally have done it recently, and we're we're in the middle of working on that. He used small mics and not big old fancy things. We recorded on my, you know, one inch tape on this giant recording uh, tape machine, and there there were no gizmos. That's the funny thing that people thought I must have split the speakers or they must have done something stupid like that but it was all natural the way the studio was that day we played it back and didn't even realize it was going to be that good holy mackerel what did we just do there it was and of course you know we had to deal with warner brothers reprise and uh when we finished the album they put out something before christmas but it's not a great time to put out singles especially back then so they that, it didn't go over too well after christmas and and, and uh everything settled from the holidays uh, they released it uh, in early spring. It got a lot of airplay, especially in L.A., which was very, very important. But it didn't go anywhere. It was like on a, it was like in heavy rotation. But uh, the sales weren't there yet. And I guess back then there was coordination between record labels and radio stations because the labels did their own promotion. They weren't part of this whole gigantic network of 30 labels and stuff and it was more intimate in terms of doing business so everybody knew what was happening and then of course there were all the record stores where not now there's none <laughs> just about none and so they, they were you know it was a little it was quite coordinated but there was one person within the warner brothers organization that said this is just the best song ever uh, yeah he called up <laughs> like k something or other in la said listen you're gonna yeah. you're gonna have the song on your top 10 list top 20 i guess they did top 20 in those days uh next week he said, well, we were thinking of, you know, dropping it. And he said, don't you dare drop it because I got 20,000 singles going out tomorrow. And he said, no kidding. And so they kept it on the playlist. And a week later, it was in the top 10. And the second week later, it was number one or two. I remember hearing it sold two million initially. I mean, that was gigantic back then, and yes, uh, it, it was on the charts for quite a long time. You know, they they say it only became number three on Billboard, but in that, in those days, there, there was a another uh, publication called Cashbox. It was number right. one on Cashbox for a while, and uh, so that was great. It just burst out, and then. Of course, they released it internationally, and it, it was it was just about number one everywhere. I mean, everywhere. 
Well, I have to tell you, as a as a kid, it was one of the first forty fives that I bought, and I know that on the flip side was milk cows, yeah. which I liked also. And with vinyl having this resurgence the last few years, the production values uh, of Spirit in the Sky it's just amazing. It's still a sparkling recording. I don't know if you feel like you were just touched and it was miraculous. <laughs> I, I I believe I was touched by. The- the spirit and that, i mean i was touched by the spirit again after the accident i was in i was in a, i was in a coma for three and a half yeah. weeks and barely hanging in there and all these people prayed. right and in, in my coma i i had dreams of of the prayers i mean i thought they were dreams i thought actually i thought it was real these people were calling out to me to come back and my girlfriend uh, was at the hospital, and she saw wings over me. She walked in and started crying. I didn't find this out until later. So I mean, I I was blessed to get through that, and it's still happening. Yeah, it it was one of those things I I believe that were meant to be. And and uh, if you if you follow the song from then till you know there was the dead period, of course after. It's being called a one-hit wonder because it was just about impossible to ever do something like that again. Uh, it was too heavy to follow up. Yeah, in the history of music, I, I really can't put my finger on if there was ever a catchier song, and by that I mean that earworm where you're just, you're just singing it all day long. It was just one of those amazing it events. It stick in your head, and I know it's... Well, odd for me to say it. I sometimes hear it without thinking. That is, you know, <laughs> Benita says, what are you doing? I'm listening to myself. <laughs> I've always wanted to ask you the line, never been a sinner, I never sinned. Though At the time, did you catch some flack from Christians at the time? Uh, it was a little out of my, I mean, it was a reality of religion that I wasn't familiar with. So, but uh, it wasn't intentional. It's okay. Most everybody has got past it. I heard that it was uh, that there are actually funeral homes that have used it in in their TV Not on commercials, TV, but in, on on radio and used a lot for all kinds of things. And we we turned down things, uh, you know. With, I heard that there was a French vodka company that wanted to name their brand Spirit in the Sky. Did that I ever happen? I was so wanting that to happen. No, it didn't. It, it <laughs> didn't. I think that the gentleman wound up in the middle of red tape for some reason. In those days, nobody was doing things like that. And uh, big business, uh, they don't like the edge that much. At least back then, it didn't seem they did. We all know that it's been on a bunch of TV shows and movies and animation. It must have been you must have felt pretty proud when you saw it uh, on the uh, Apollo oh, that, 13 that film. Was really great. Yeah. Possibly my favorite. Uh, it's a, it was really good. But it's been in 60 movies. A wow. lot you haven't heard of because there are summer documentaries and, and, and some are foreign movies that, that people don't really know about. But yeah, it's been in 60 movies, and it's probably been in about 30 commercials already. About 40 TV shows and 
three funeral homes. <laughs> well, and I don't know if you ever saw this, but I saw the the band, the Kentucky Headhunters, perform Spirit in the Sky in 1992 at Farm Aid. Oh, yeah. I've uh, uh, corresponded with them a little. That was a, a very, that, that was, I believe, the greatest cover version of it. Uh Incidentally, it was covered twice by people in in England, and uh, the first one was by a band called Doctor and the Medics. They did some face painting, okay. and uh, they had girls singing background uh, with interesting clo- clothes, and uh, it became number one again in, in, the, in the UK and then across Europe. Not here, but there. So it was twice number one on Tops of the Pops, as they say. And then a few years after that, it was done again by a gentleman named Gareth Gates. It became number one again. It's been number one three times in England, which is pretty good. Yeah, people on the Internet have made all kinds of videos with it. There was a rumor here, I don't know, 20 years or so ago, uh, that you lived here in the Las Vegas area. Is that that you ran a motorcycle shop oh, here? Oh, that rumor. That... <laughs> no, but there is someone there with my name. And yes, that person does run a motorcycle shop. I've never met okay. the person uh, or really tried to look them up, tell you the truth. But I finally met some people that are into motorcycles that said, yeah. We know that guy. <laughs> I found out that there's a few other people that have my, my name. And uh, one is a, a dentist in upstate New York. And one is in Florida doing something. And an accountant in, in Beverly Hills. <laughs> All the people that go to Sturgis with motorcycles once a year. Uh, right. People have seen me there. But it was the other guy. <laughs> well, and and I I heard that you were honored not too long ago with a huge mural in your hometown. Oh, it was, was great. Uh, my hometown, which is Malden, Mass, in honor of the 50th year anniversary of the song being a hit, and and me being one of the more famous people because of that from the from that city, they put up a, a three story mural. Right. And I went back. Uh, for the unveiling and hung around for a few days, met the mayor and all that kind of stuff. And the police chief, the police chief said, "Hey, by the way, you know, there's still an outstanding warrant for you for speeding." I said, well, how much is it? I'll pay. He says, "It's only twenty-five cents, <laughs> but you don't have to." But I pulled a quarter out of my. Yeah, I, <laughs> it was just a wonderful thing. And so we've got some uh, appearances lined up, and we'll be having more. Uh, I'm also joining a an oldies roadshow with a few appearances where I'll only be doing three songs, uh, but uh, with their with their uh, house band. Uh, but uh, that'll fill up some dates in the summer. So yeah, I'll be doing both, and we always sing on the solstice in the middle of June in the Golden Gate Park with uh, a lot of the people that started uh, their bands in San Francisco in, in the middle to late 60s who are still with us. If they're in town, like people from uh, Big Brother and Jefferson 
airplane and uh, it's a beautiful day and that's the chambers of the chambers nice whole bunch of us uh that is great to hear i i would be great if uh, we could see you here in las vegas at all i can say norman is that it's been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you and and calling i appreciate it and you know it's not like there wasn't serious competition when spirit in the sky was released also on the charts at that time the beatles let it be the Jackson 5's ABC and I Want You Back, Edwin Starr's massive hit War, George Harrison's My Sweet Lord, just to name a few. And I would be remiss in not mentioning those wonderful backup singers on Spirit in the Sky. They were the Stovall sisters, who were a gospel trio from Indiana. Philip Bailey was a percussionist for the trio before going on to join Earth, Wind, and Fire. Well, that does it for this episode of The Fake Show. I'm Jim Tofty. I'll see you back here next time. Take The Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com. Bye.